We have a saying in my in my field that research is me search. Part of it's also we teach the things we most need to learn. For me, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. It sort of became more clear later. This really was about my own journey and trying to understand and manage the stress that I've experienced. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Welcome you back into Human Resolve, our podcast brought to you by First Person. My name is Mark Minner. I am the president at First Person. I've got a wonderful colleague joining me today, Kristen Campbell, who helps work with our total rewards and specializes in our mental health practice for our employers as well. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Lisa Penny, who was part of our Resolve Increments session, and we had such a great time hearing from her and engaging that conversation, we thought, what a great opportunity to dive even a little bit deeper and get your thoughts on this year. Dr. Penny, for those not familiar, a professor of management in the Mooma College of Business at the University of South Florida, Sarasota Manatee campus, where she teaches undergraduate and MBA courses on management, leadership, and organizational behavior, receiving her PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from the University of South Florida in Tampa. She's an award-winning researcher who spent nearly 20 years studying the causes and consequences of job stress and stress reactions such as counterproductive work, behavior, and burnout. Dr. Penny, we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Have you ever been as in demand as you've been in 2020? First, thank you for having me. And no, the simple answer is no. <laughs> it's always good to be in demand, though. What a year this is, has been for, for so many reasons, and we don't need to necessarily rehash all those. But as it relates to, to stress, you, I mean, this is something that you haven't just started talking about. This is something that you've been studying for a long time. How have you seen the evolution of from an employer or a personal mindset in 2020 around the, the, the word stress or stress in the workplace? Uh, you know, I think that people are talking about it more freely now than they used to. You know, what's interesting, I was just talking to somebody earlier today uh, about the year 2020, and they said, oh, it's about visioning and seeing clearly. And yeah, <laughs> and what we're seeing really clearly are things that we didn't really expect to see. We're seeing a lot of, you know, the burnout for example, uh, and, you know, on top of everything else, you know, more globally, you know, the you know, systemic injustice and things like that, that we hadn't seen before, our interconnectedness, our interdependence, we're seeing so much more clearly than before. So I think that in, in, in that way, it's good because we can't deal with things if we don't acknowledge their presence and to, to recognize that people are dealing with stress and recognizing the human element of that it's important to address the, the, the human parts of that, that it's not just about productivity and numbers. And, you know, if you, those things are important, absolutely, but it's people who are the ones who achieve that. And if we neglect people and where they are, then 
everything else suffers. So yeah, it's been interesting to, to be in on this conversation. You've obviously had an incredible array of experiences over your career. You've been published, you've done a TED Talk, you've been in television appearances. You're obviously very involved in the academic world with your students on a daily basis. How I'm always fascinated by how people get started into a specific function or a specific practice area. How did stress become the thing that you said, that's what I'm going after. That's what I want to specialize in. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We have a saying in my, in my field that research is me search, you know, and part of it's also we, we teach the things we most need to learn. And so for me, you know, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. It sort of became more clear later that this really was about my own journey and trying to understand and manage the stress that I've experienced. I can give you a little bit of background, I guess, on, you know, where it all started. And I was thinking about this earlier. One of the most stressful things we can experience is uncertainty and not knowing, you know, what's happening or what's going on. And I think that's where a lot of people are feeling right now that there's a lot of groundlessness in our experience around the pandemic. And we don't know what's going to happen. You know, even with the election a few days away, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Regardless of what happens, there's still a lot of remaining uncertainty. And, you know, when I was, let's see, probably about three or four years old, actually, I was thinking about this earlier, I had a really visceral experience of groundlessness. My parents, I can't remember the specifics, but I remember is standing at the front door of our house, screen door, and looking out at my parents who were having this huge fight. And the short version of that, it was their marriage imploding right in front of me. And after that, you know, my, my father stormed off and my mom stormed back home. And, and I was, I don't remember a whole lot of what I saw, but I remember just being absolutely terrified. And my cousin who lived across the street came, saw me and rushed me into the house. And, you know, but just this feeling of my whole world just blew up. And I don't know what to do with that. And, you know, growing up with that, not really having anybody to really guide me through that. I'm the oldest of three. My mom, single mom, an immigrant. She immigrated to this country from Vietnam for lots of reasons, you know, but it was a war-torn country. And she experienced a lot of that firsthand. And so for her, she was very much in survival mode, always. And growing up, I was taught how to survive. That yes, the world is a scary place. And you have to protect yourself. You keep your head down and be careful and look out. And that was her way of helping us, you know, my siblings and I, to learn how to survive. Side effect of that is anxiety that I learned the world is scary. Oh God, oh God. My sister and I joke that like our default reaction to everything new is, ah, you know, it's whatever it is, good or bad, it's oh God, and I'm going to die. And I think that really is at the root of anxiety and fear, which are very closely related neurobiologically, as you know, ultimately that boils down to, you know, fear of death. Um, so, so yeah, they had a lot of anxiety and I didn't know what to do with it. And so growing up at first, I was, when I was young, I kept quiet and didn't say anything and that didn't feel very good. And I got older, teenager, young adult, and I got angry because I got tired of being quiet and it came out sideways a lot. And so I guess when I, if 
found my way into the field of industrial organizational psychology. You know, what resonated with me the most as I was reading up on these things were things like injustice, actually organizational justice and how that impacts people. And I read this amazing paper by Gerald Greenberg that looked at the relationship between organizational justice and employee theft. And the bottom line of that paper was, hey, it was a field experiment. It said, if you're actually nice to people, then you actually see an ROI in terms of, you know, hard numbers, lower theft, lower turnover and things like that. And I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. And so that kind of got me started down the, you know, the rabbit hole that became sort of my bread and butter as a researcher. When you went through that, obviously a a traumatic moment, and then just, you know, growing up in in that environment from time to time, I'm I'm sure, as you said, it created those stress reactions, it created anxiety, it created that fear for you. How, How long did it take you to recognize what was driving that? And, and how did you eventually kind of come to grips with it? That's something that I'm constantly learning and relearning. So I had this, and I think for a long time had this delusion that I could somehow figure out how to get rid of it, how to stop my anxiety, how to, you know, it's just make, I'm going to make it all go away. I'm just not going to be anxious anymore. I'm going to figure this out, check the box. I've done this work. Boom. It's gone. No, it doesn't work that way. And so it's a lifelong journey, I guess. So, and, and I think, honestly, if I'm honest, it's gotten really more solid probably over the last 10 years. So I'm a slow learner, <laughs> but you know, I've had pivotal moments through my life that have helped me to see that a lot of the anxiety that I feel is disproportionate to what's happening. I think because of my early experiences, I'm you know almost hardwired to be overreactive to things and to catastrophize things. My, my automatic knee jerk is worst possible story, and then I go, "Oh, hold on a second, is that really?" <laughs> right. You know, um, that's oh, actually no, it's really not the end of the world. Or I, my body is reacting very viscerally, as if you know I'm being attacked by a bear. And I'm like, "Okay, take a breath. Are you you're not being attacked by a bear? What's going on here?" <laughs> I will even tell you um, honestly. So funny story, getting the feedback from the resolved increments was wonderful. And then I got an email saying, oh, we're doing this podcast. My immediate reaction, ah, really? And, I've, and I had this moment of like panic and freaking out. And I was like, what is that about? So I had to like take a <laughs> breath and ask myself, like, what's going on? Are you, why are you panicked? You know what they say? People's greatest fears are podcast is definitely one of the top three <laughs> in those lifelong fears. Right after death. That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, it really wasn't that. That's just it, though, is it wasn't. So the, the the emotional, the physical, what I've learned from me anyway, the visceral reaction of that, ah, it's like excitement and fear are the same thing. They live very close together. And so I have of the habit, based on my past experiences, of interpreting it as danger. And so I catch myself and I notice the feeling and go, oh, is what is that? Okay, is it, are you afraid? I'm like, okay. Yes. Why are you in danger? No. What are you afraid of? Oh, I just never done this before. I'm like, oh, that's not real fear. That's excitement holding its breath. So I'm like, oh, okay. Then that's, so that's different. So like I said, this is something that is, I think will be a lifelong, I don't want to say struggle because it's not struggle. Assumes you're fighting against something. I think it's just, for me, it's more of an awareness and a making friends with process. I'm like, oh, that's that, that feeling. That's my three-year-old standing at the door and she doesn't know any better. So she, she's going to react like that. And so I go, it's okay. You're safe. You're not in any danger. And so I can learn to move, you know, through whatever it is that I'm facing. 
And it would appear that the that that word awareness and your earlier comment about stress being talked about more in the workplace, Kristen. One of the things that I know you've looked at 2020 and said of all the negatives, some of the positives can be things like the way we talk about mental health in the workplace, the way we talk about other types of formerly taboo topics from a professional setting. And you're starting to see some of that evolution happening really quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, I would absolutely say that from the standpoint of a silver lining in the pandemic, we have started to escalate some of the conversations that we were uncomfortable to have still are uncomfortable to have, but we can no longer hold the privilege of just not addressing these things. And we very early on in about March or April did a webinar on, you know, how do we protect our our own mental health? How do we protect our employees' mental health? Because we did a quick poll and that was the number one fear of HR professionals was, okay, I, I've sent everybody home and now I'm really, really worried about them because I can no longer see them the same way I used to see them. I could no longer interact with them. You know, we were still learning. And I would say, you know, six, seven, eight months later, we're still trying to navigate this virtual world. But it was, okay, I've, I haven't really equipped and prepared even myself for these challenging times, let alone a team of 10, 50, 100, 1,000, 50,000. And now it's good luck and it's scary. And, you know, we're looking at some of these words. We're looking at, you know, stress. We're looking at burnout. We're, we're starting to say things like mental health and mental illness out loud. And it just like with anything, when we haven't done it before, it feels weird and it feels scary and it feels uncomfortable and we're afraid to say the wrong thing. And so it's how do you navigate through that muddiness? How how do you take a step forward when you still feel very much in the dark and you're uncertain what you're going to run into or what you're going to stumble over and you don't even know who's around you, right? Like who can I have to like hold on to because I feel really alone right now. And I think that's one of the first things that I noticed is this loneliness epidemic that is not just taking place since majority of the workforce has gone into their homes, but it's in what people are are going through and kind of trudging through. Burnout is definitely a piece within your story. And so I would love to hear you talk more about that burnout and especially touching on that piece of that chronic stress that maybe no longer is the case anymore. From my perspective and the way that I've studied burnout, it's important to differentiate between stressor and a strain response. So stress is seen as a process. You know, we use we tend to use the word more in, in lay terms far more broadly, but it, it really is a process. So stress, a stressor is a demand, something that requires you to take some action to do something you haven't been doing. So you have additional projects. You've got to work from home. You have to teach students online at the same time as you have some in in the classroom and you have to do that while wearing a mask. You know, you've got children at at home trying to learn while you're also at home trying to hold your podcast while your partner is also in the other room trying to work and all of these things. These are demands. And, you know, these stressors trigger responses in us and we can have and they're all related. So we have typically the most immediate are like our emotional responses. You know, we can in that moment when the when the stressor pops up, feel angry, anxious, frustrated, what have you. 
And, you know, we might take certain actions in response to the stressor, some that might be productive, ways to find solutions, to address that, to reduce the demand, to eliminate it. There might be other things that we can do when we can't do that. How do we cope with the emotions over the longer term when there is an imbalance between what we are able to do to cope with the stressor and the demands? There's a sort of, you know, I think about it as sort of like a scale, old school, like justice scales that I'm thinking that if you have too much on one end, then it starts to get out of balance. And burnout is seen as the result of having way too many demands you know, more so than you have resources. So it's like you have, you're running at a deficit and it might be if you've got $10,000 in the bank, you know, and you're not having any, and you're maybe collecting a thousand dollars a month, but you're spending $1,500, $2,000 a month. You're okay for a little bit, but over time you're going to be running a deficit and now you're going into the red. And it's the same way with burnout is seen as the result of chronic stressors, meaning happening over time and not having enough resources to to address that, not being able to produce those demands. And burnout is seen as the central feature of that is emotional exhaustion. When you just feel completely empty, this depersonalization where your relationships and interactions with people become more transactional, where you don't even have the ability to see them as people and a decreased sense of personal accomplishment that you're just not able to achieve. You feel like it doesn't matter what you're doing, what you do, it's, you're just, you're treading water. You're not making a difference. And that's very demoralizing. And so burnout historically uh, was looked at, at least in the field of industrial organizational psychology in the service professions or people who are working with other people, that that was seen as the most demanding. And over time, these people, service workers would become burned out. And, you know, so looking at things like taking time away, how do you recuperate? But then immediately you go back into a situation where you're still running at a deficit. Over time, you're going to get burned out. And so burnout... And what's interesting is in our culture, we almost, in some respects, pre-COVID, almost saw that as a badge of honor, right? I'm going to, you know, running myself into the ground. There's you know, pride in that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, in organizations, you saw a lot of that, it was a, you know, competition. Yeah, and, yes. I don't understand that. Honestly, it, like from a, a rational perspective, it's cultural. I, I don't know. But yes, it's been this point of pride in our culture and we don't, we do it because it's what we've always done and we don't stop to question that. But, you know, what I've learned with burnout and I've always said, well, burnout's like a slow leak in your tires, you know, or, you know, you're running at a deficit in your budget over time. You might be fine for our first couple of months, but if you don't do something about it, it becomes a problem. But I think with COVID, I learned that, you know, that can actually happen really quickly that, you know, burnout can have, you can have people who are highly engaged and all of a sudden, boom, they hit a wall that they weren't expecting to hit because, a lot of demands were dropped on them that unexpectedly that they weren't ill prepared to meet. So all of the examples that Kristen gave, I'm sending my people home. I don't know how they're doing. I can't see them. And, and I'm, I'm lonely and, you know, I'm feeling frustrated and this uncertainty and that, and on, on top of the technological issues and challenges of trying to work remotely. Yeah. It's, it happened very quickly for a lot of people. How do you identify that in others? You started to give some of the trends for, self-identification of burnout. I think that's one of the things that managers have been struggling with this year as much as any other year, you know, more, more than any other year, likely that what they're being asked to do and asked to be expected to be able to observe and identify and pick up faster. What are, what are some of the trends you see in that early indicators? That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it, but because when people are dispersed, you don't see them. And so what you tend to see are the results of their efforts. 
And so probably the first thing that managers will notice because we're managers are dealing with their own, you know, extra demands. And so our bandwidth to, to recognize these issues, you know, we may not be able to see it right away, but we might notice it in someone's the quality and quantity of the work they're putting in. That someone who's always been a high performer is suddenly struggling. We see that they're not putting out as much as they used to, or that, you know, there's just something's off. What's more dangerous is when people can manage the surface of it for a while and hide the fact that they are burnout because of concerns about stigma. And people can do that for, I think, a good long while, but the problem is they can't do it forever. So I'll give you an example for me. Stress. Most people are familiar with fight or flight, right? So think about what that feels like in your body. It energizes you to do something. So it's fast. So you run forward. When I was in graduate school, trying to manage my own classes and everything else, I every year I would get sick around the holidays, like not just the holidays, right? It was almost the day after this, after finals were over. And I don't just mean like I got a cold. I mean, I got pneumonia and it was all the stress that was, I had all this work that I was doing and I could put the pedal to the floor and get through it. But then as soon as it was done, my body would give out. And I think that's, you know, something that, you know, HR folks should be aware of is that, you know, the ones that you're starting to see results now that that checking in, but even if you're not seeing that, I think it's important to check in with people and, you know, how are you? No, how are you really? You know, I see that you're, you're, you're managing. And I think that's amazing. How are you really? That's a lot because that's a lot for you to, for anybody to do. And I know that there's other things and just acknowledging the, the extra lift that's on their plates would be helpful. Yeah. And, and I think that's the tricky thing too, is, is, you know, the stigma doesn't just go away over overnight here, right. in this year, this is still a journey that we, we've got to do a better job collectively in organizations to make sure that, 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 that doesn't uh, occur as much and that people feel more comfortable. So you can start to identify things, root cause. If people felt uncomfortable talking about blood pressure being elevated, then you go into a situation where people are having a bunch of heart attacks and heart disease, right? You, you want people to be able to address those things early so it doesn't lead to larger challenges for individuals and their, and their families. And one of the things in, in your TED Talk and in some of your writing as well, I, 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 love, I love learning brain science, right? And I, I love having heard about some of the brain science. You certainly talked about some of that to Kristen's question about burnout. I think one of the other topics you talk about that I always find interesting is, is fast and slow brains, two types of brains and some of the ways to start to break down how stress and, you know, just this, this idea of burnout, just this, this, the challenge of going into to tough environments, how does your brain work so that you can start to unpack that and identify when those things are occurring? Well, yeah. So, you know, the term fast brain, slow brain, I think was coined by Daniel Kahneman, but there are a lot of neuroscientists that do a lot of work with the way our brains function and the fast brain, slow brain, I think is just a good shorthand way for people to understand. It's not physical, different physical parts of your brain. It's sort of metaphorical. The way our brains, the way we make decisions about things, we can do that. A lot of it is done automatically. You know, our brains, we evolve to conserve resources. The example I use in my classes, you know, the first day of class students, they show up and they know to sit 
They've never been in my classroom before. You know, it's the first day of school, maybe the first day on this campus, but they notice it in the seats. Nobody's dancing on the tables. Nobody's standing up the front doing, you know, having a party or what have you. And it's because they know that, oh, this is related to something I've done in the past. It's familiar. So I don't have to think about it. It's the same thing with like skills, learning to drive. At first it was effortful. It required a lot of effort, but over time, then we, it becomes autom- automated. That's our fast brain takes over. It doesn't require a lot of energy. And it works really well when we are in familiar environments, things that, but it, it also makes mistakes because it often assumes that we are in familiar environments when we're not. Our slow brain is usually associated with our prefrontal cortex that controls executive functions, our decision making, and things along those lines. And it takes more time and energy and effort to actually stop and think things through, which is why we tend to not like to do it, where it's, it just feels uncomfortable because it is, it's, it requires more effort. It's a demand. So, and, and from, you know, that respect, it's stressful. It's requiring you to, to get out of your comfort zone. That's something new I'm having to think about versus what's comfortable is what's familiar, what I already know. The way our brains are hardwired is to make those fast decisions, not necessarily good or accurate ones, just to hurry up, come up with an answer and go about your day. And most of the time that works just fine for us, but we run into problems when we're in a new situation, new territory, then our brains are still going to automatically just assume this is the same as it was before, unless we can bring it to heel and recognize, oh, actually we need to stop and think about this a little bit more critically. And so that's like the one piece of bad news. The worst news is that when we're under stress, that gets worse. And so what I've seen is a lot of managers when COVID first hit to default to what they already knew. We're going to do things. We're going to proceed as if everything was fine and just and expect all these like, hold on a second. That doesn't really hold water if you stop and think about it. But the problem is we don't do that either. I can tell you that for me, when the our university made the decision, you have to, okay, we're not meeting in person anymore. We have to switch to online. And we got a lot of, they were being very helpful in, in a lot of ways and throwing a lot of resources at us. Here's how, here are these platforms that you should use. Oh, wait, this one's not stable. Use this one. Oh, wait, this one isn't reliable either. Use this one. And throwing tons and tons of resources at us to be helpful. And for me, in my state of stress and anxiety going, oh God, I have to learn all these things and learn redundancy. I just started running forward and it's like, okay, okay, this is what they're telling me to do. I'm going to go do that without stopping to think about it because this is a direction. My body says move in any direction. And I spent 12 to 15 hours a day in online trainings for three or four days. And that's when I hit the wall because it was too much. I also think it's part of the reason why we people ran out and bought toilet paper because <laughs> this pandemic and it's scary and we're, we're afraid and we don't know what's going on. We have all this energy. Someone says, oh, there might be a, to- a toilet paper shortage. And so I have all this energy. I need to do something with it. I'm going to run. I can't do anything about the pandemic, but I can sure as heck pile up as much toilet paper as I can find. And ironically, create the very shortage that we feared would happen. Yeah, Lisa, the the theme I'm hearing throughout this is really trying to increase our self-awareness and our self-reflection, right? To make it specific to our own situation. You know, we talk about like shining a light into each individual's world, right? How often and how long have we been trying to tell people like, bring your whole selves to work? And now literally you're able to look, 
you have the lens literally into people's lives, into their kitchens, into their living rooms. I mean, it's to the point where my now five-month-old son has attended more Zoom meetings than my 36-year-old husband. And that's just the reality that we're living in right now. And one of the things that I do with our clients in our mental well-being training is really working on stress identification. What is the trigger, right? What is that onset to this? Is it my phone? Is it a ding from an email? Like what is it that then produces, right? My response, my specific response. I think until we are almost put in an environment where we're not forced, but we're given space to explore that, it is deep enough that we just don't naturally go to those depths on our own. So instead of just saying, I'm stressed or I'm mad or I'm frustrated, I'm able to say in this very specific instance, when this happens and this happens and this happens and I feel this way, this is what's taking place. And now that I know that, now that I better understand myself and this situation, I'm able to proceed forward with maybe arming myself with some different things or taking a different path. And so I, I think that that is a theme that I'm hearing from you with, you know, just pay attention, breathe, like stay curious. But I would love to know if, you know, kind of that self-awareness piece, if you've also found that to be true in your work. And I know you're working with, you know, 18 to 22 year olds now and, you know, their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed yet, but I'd love to hear more from you on that self-awareness piece. You know, we live in a comfort culture that says we want to put only see the shiny, happy things. It's almost, you know, a tyranny of positivity in some ways that, oh, let's make everybody happy. And we don't want to hear about the negative. It's all good, you know, and, and, and that's not to say that, you know, those things, you know, being grateful and counting your blessings aren't helpful. Of course they are. And, and they have their place, but in my experience, it's, you know, until we acknowledge the struggle and the pain first, then we have, we have to talk about that before we can get to, you know, the other piece, we have to acknowledge all of that and to be aware of all of those struggles. And, you know, it's something that I think everything you talked about learning to do that for ourselves is, is really the first piece, because I think that unless we allow ourselves to pay attention to where we are and not just to do, have that curiosity, but a friend of mine uses the term compassionate curiosity, you know, so that we can be curious about where we are, not to be like, oh, shame on you for feeling this. It's like, oh yeah, it's, it's messy right now. And it's, you know, what I, what I like to do when I talk about stress is I want people to understand the process so that it's normalized. So it's, this is the process. It's not you. There's nothing wrong with you. This is how it shows up for everybody. And if this is what you're feeling, that's, yeah, of course you're feeling this because this is a heavy lift right now. I tell my students all the time and, and I worry about them because a lot of them I can't see. And I, I, you know, do my best to just share with them and try and check in how are you? And we do like a one word, word cloud anonymous, you know, at the beginning of my classes, sometimes one word, how are you feeling? And there might be more than one feeling, you know, you could be feeling anxious, but also, you know, determined. And so trying to get people more used to identifying in themselves, what it is that they're feeling so that, you know, once we bring that curiosity to ourselves and our own experience, then we can bring that to other people as well. You know, how are you? How can I support you? How are you actually what I've been asking a lot of people when I, when they tell me where they are, like, how are you taking care of yourself these days? And that's usually when people burst into tears because they say, I'm not. And I'm like, well, gosh, I'm, you know, you're important. And, uh, you know, I care about you. And I, I, I hope that you will because 
we need you. And I was actually leading a, a training on Monday and the question was presented, how, how do you create space for somebody to step into their grief? And their grief could be grieving the fact of like, my routine has been thrown off. They could be grieving, you know, the social connections that they're not able to have. I mean, we're, we're all grieving something, right? We've all lost something. There's been a shift like you talk about. And they had asked like, what, what is the role for leaders, Right. Like how, how do you create that space? And my response is, was very similar to what you just did. And I said, you know, in order for, for that space to be created, a leader has to create that psychological safety. Right. And really kind of take off their own armor and say, like, look, I'm human too. If, if all I, I being the employee C is kind of a robot, somebody that just maybe is trying to again, keep it all together because they think they need to. I then perceive it as I'm not able to then show you how I'm feeling or even have the ability to feel it myself. What else would you say to leaders right now? And not just that question, but really kind of what their role can be right now for their people. Sometimes leaders in a misguided way want to be comfortable and and it's so painful to see people suffer that I think in, in a misguided way, again, running fast is, no, I, ju- I just want everybody to be happy. And, you know, and let's only talk about the positive things because I'm afraid if I talk about the other things, it's going to be hard. It's like sometimes people say, I don't want to cry because if I do, I'm afraid I'm not going to stop, you know, but emotions are transient things. They are, I heard someone put it poetically, emotions are energy and motion and we need to let them move. And if they don't move, they get stuck and it is not benign. It is harmful. So creating the space where people can move through those places, but, and through, as Kristen mentioned, modeling that yourself, you know, by saying, yeah, it's, it's hard for me too. kind of wanting to yada, yada, some of the negative experiences and the pain that people are in. I understand that it might be what people might have that reaction because I just don't want to talk about it, but it's, it's actually dangerous. And it's interesting to think about how that evolution takes place in the in the workplace and generationally. And I, and I wonder, you're around students right now, as Kristen mentioned, 18 to 22-year-olds, you probably have a wide array of experiences depending on the class, depending on the year. But from your perspective, as you look at this next generation of professionals and, and leaders in, in the workplace, in the community, what, what are you what are you seeing and sensing as trends that you're going to start to see how the workplace evolves over the next 20, 30, 40 years? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a double-edged sword because we do have this, we have had this epidemic of anxiety and depression pre-COVID and COVID has been exacerbating it. And, you know, this is the, the, the gen, what are we on? Gen Z? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going gen toward Z alpha. Is. I think we're starting, we're starting over. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, starting we're, over? we're going all over. Yeah. Oh, well, it's kind of like the hurricane names that they had to do. <laughs> <starting> <laughs> over. Um, yeah. So on, on one hand, you know, there's a lot more conversation and openness about talking about the fact that they're anxious and they're, that they're in struggle. And I think that some people see that as a sign of weakness but that's a holdover from an older culture that says it's not okay to talk about these things. So part of it, it might be that they are more free to talk about these things is why we're hearing more about it. Whereas other, you know, in the past, we didn't give ourselves permission to do that. And the other part is that, you know, a lot of the struggle is real for this generation. You know, if I think about what the world was like when I grew up and what it's like for them, they grew up 
in a post 9-11 world. They've grown up with this technology that is inundating them with information, most of which is designed to hold your attention, which means it's designed to focus on the negative because we pay more attention to negative information than positive information. So it's engineered to keep us anxious. And we didn't know that. Well, at least, you know, we in civilians, not in the tech sector, which they actually they have engineered, literally engineered it for that reason to hold our attention. We didn't know that. And so we hand over devices to to distract ourselves thinking it seems harmless enough, but it's, it's really not. And then school shootings and all these other things and now pandemic. And I think that the talking about their feelings isn't their more willingness and openness and talking about these things might be perplexing for managers who are not used to that. And I think the mistaken assumption is to say that it's a sign of weakness. That's a courageous thing. You're self-aware enough to understand that you're feeling something. You're communicating that. And by the way, emotions are really important pieces of data. So I think that the uh, this generation is a little bit more aware of that, which I think is a good thing. And I think that's something that we can capitalize on by using it as an opportunity for us to to loosen up our own rigidity around that and, and, and acknowledge that there may be some things that we can learn from them. And certainly there's a lot that they can learn from us too. By the way, that siren in the background that we heard there, nobody is driving. If you're listening to the podcast, nobody's driving and speeding during this interview. <laughs> that was just passing was Dr. Passing. Penny. So. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for that. That happened. You're talking about pandemics and all of these things that people are dealing with and you got sirens going off in the background. It was, it was, it was fitting. But uh, yes, that was, I, I actually scheduled that. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Well, Dr. Penny, thank you so much for sharing. Obviously, you've done so much research and, and so much learning in this area. And who, who would have thought that it would have come to a head so much this year? But as you said, it's been something that's been underlying for a long time. And you and Kristen both were able to speak about the opportunity this year now for people to become more aware of what the underlying causes is to be able to address it more openly in the workplace and in their personal lives and hopefully leading to better outcomes in the future, better resilience for people as they go through these challenges. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast, Human Resolve and Kristen Campbell, as always, appreciate what you do for our team and and for the community. Thank you both. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure, Kristen. It was so wonderful to, to sit with you today. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging FirstPersonBA and using hashtag HumanResolve on social media. Oh.